Ladies and gentlemen, the duo that was chosen by Jesus Christ to deliver his gospel, Cena and Justin. Wow, wowie, wow, wow, wow. Look at all the blessed people here today. Justin, it's so good to see you. How do you feel, Justin? How do you feel, Justin? Oh, bless you. Thank you. I am happy to be here with all of God's children on Spotify. Amen. Amen. The Spotify children understand what's important, and that is to give to your Lord so that you can get back. That's right. If you want to go to the land of milk and honey, you must break off a little bit of that money. And for 22 payments of $49.95, you can get that milk and honey every day of the week. If you love Jesus Christ, you need to holler. Please peel off a couple of dollars. Welcome, everybody, to Fraudsters. I'm Cena Gazavi. Justin Williams is here, as always. Uh, we're talking about Jim Baker today, a televangelist. Newsflash. I'm excited. I love the televangelist. My grandmother uh, watches televangelist every Sunday, so I've, I've watched several hours of a lot of Jimmy Swagger, I think, is the one that she watches a lot. So There's a lot of them out there, and they, they all have this whole thing. But the, today, we're going to focus on Jim Baker, who was one of the most successful full televangelist in the world before he actually got put away imprisoned for fraud between 1984 and 1987 baker raised $158 million promising free stays at a christian disneyland called heritage usa on december 5th 1988 one day before my birthday he was indicted on eight counts of mail fraud 15 counts of wire fraud what the fuck's a wire fraud and one count of conspiracy he was found guilty of all charges and was sentenced to 45 years and was fined five hundred thousand dollars but justin before we break that down i want to talk about jim baker's former and late wife tammy faye now Tammy Faye, a lot of people probably remember her from reality TV. What was she was on some show, right? She was on VH1's uh, The Surreal Life, uh, and uh, she was roommates with Vanilla Ice and Ron Jeremy. Lord help me! <laughs> but you know what, though, <laughs> only a sweet, sweet woman like Tammy Faye could be roommates with those two guys. And I think maybe Vanilla Ice might be the most morally centered person out of all three of those people? I don't know. He, he had a lot of anger on that show. And I think Tam, Tammy actually comes across as really sympathetic on that show in a lot of ways. That's what I'm saying. Tammy's amazing. She had the thick eye makeup and she'd cry and run every time she would cry. And she would feel so hard. She was such a pure empath. You know, yeah. she's always trying to make everyone feel good. She's like, I remember watching that show and her trying to calm Vanilla Ice down constantly. Yeah, he had a lot of Vanilla Ice has a lot of anger about being made into a cultural punchline, yeah. uh, which now he actually hosts a show on. It's like one of the home improvement networks on Discover. It's Vanilla Ice uh, hanging out with the Amish. <laughs> that's that's the show. <laughs> it's just like I, I like it's just like the loosest, craziest purpose of the world. It's like a lot of people know Vanilla Ice as a rapper, but what would happen if he? generally hung out with the Amish. This is a show now. <laughs> because Tammy Faye is such a sweetheart, because she's such an empath, because from what I've read, she was largely ignorant to how the finances were run. I We're kind of avoiding talking about her. We're not including her in the the as a fraudster in this case. And later in life, when she was dying of cancer, her body was wrecked. She had lost all this weight, and she would even go on television just to let everyone know that it was okay to have cancer, that they should appreciate every single day of their lives. And I don't care if you're religious or not or whatever. That's That takes guts. That's sweet. That's an adorable thing to do. You know, I, I liked her. I, I, I actually found her pretty open-minded on The Surreal Life, too. Like, that's another thing. Like, uh, she comes across as just like a genuinely, like, nice, understanding person. 
person. So and she became like this gay icon too, and it was like this really amazing thing where, where the people loved her. That being said, she knew about the fraud to some degree, and at least I know it impacted her because I was reading uh, Jim Baker's uh, autobiography. I was wrong. And he put in some of the letters that she sent to him and to their board of directors. Here's an excerpt from Tammy Faye writing a letter to uh, to Jim Baker. And she also sent this to the board of directors. For years, I have been pretending that everything is all right. When in fact, I hurt all the time. I cannot pretend anymore. Pretending becomes too hard on the physical body. I have been suffering with high blood pressure, anemia, asthma, hyperventilation. All the doctors tell me, Related to stress and severe nervous strain. I mean, Tammy Faye knew what was going on. It weighs on that shit. I think lying does weigh on people. And that's why I think it's good to just get it off your chest. That's why all those cults and stuff, or even any of these like uh, the Nexium or Scientology, the way they get you to open up is to just get stuff out of your body, is to just expose vulnerabilities constantly. And you do need to do that to a certain extent. I think something like televangelism makes you hide that, makes you use Jesus or religion to kind of as a vehicle of oppressing those those feelings inside of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And for someone like her that's an empath, uh, you know, like she like, I think, you know, I get the sense that she genuinely cares about people. Like she doesn't have that yeah. sociopathic strain that uh, exactly. a lot of other fraudsters have. Um, so, yeah, so she actually, you know, having a conscience becomes like a weakness in this system, right? Jim Baker puts this in the, in the book and I actually interpreted it uh, – it could be that they knew about the she knew about the financial fraud aspects of this, but I also could have read about it is that she uh, was tired of turning a blind eye to Jim Baker's infidelities. That's true. That like he was just all over the place. He was he was cheating all over, and we're gonna get into that a little bit later in the episode. But let's that's Tammy Faye, and with that, here's Tammy Faye doing the praise the Lord song as a puppet. I praise the Lord. <laughs> oh, that is very nice. That's very pleasant to listen to. <laughs> oh my God. You know what? I, I heard they used that at Abu Ghraib. Uh, for, for interrogation. Yeah. That's what I, that's what I heard. If I ever have a blood enemy, uh, that has a baby, I'm going to buy a plush toy that makes that noise, uh, for, for their child. Honestly, I'd rather be waterboarded than listen to that again. But, okay, so let's get into this here. And to really understand Jim Baker, you gotta understand this guy, Pat Robertson. And I think you know Pat Robertson, right? He's the 700 Club guy. He's the big Christian evangelist that we've seen on TV for years. And every Sunday, I grew up seeing him as you kind of click through and stuff. But if you really wanna know about Jim Baker, you gotta know where he came from. And Pat Robertson was the guy that gave Jim Baker his start. So a little bit about Pat Robertson. He was a Marine. He graduated from Yale. He failed the New York bar exam in 1955. By the way, just so everyone knows, I passed the New York bar exam in 2012, which was probably harder than the one that they had in 1955. So eat it. <laughs> Woo! And he's, <laughs> he's humble brag. I, that's not humble at all. Uh, and so after law school, he's trying all these businesses that don't work. And this, by the way, despite having a father whose name was Absalom Willis Robertson, who served six consecutive terms in the House and three in the Senate for Virginia. And obviously he was a social and fiscal conservative. So Pat's got the pedigree and he's kind of a fuck up. Man, who does that remind me of? Dad is a big politician, a social and fiscal conservative, and the son is a fuck up. I just, I don't know. I just let, let me let me see if I can list all the people that that fits. <laughs> 
We don't have enough time, Justin. Fred Trump, Donald Trump. <laughs> Not enough. Jerry Falwell Sr., Jerry Falwell Jr., George Bush Sr., George Bush Jr., Donald Trump Sr., Donald Trump Jr. Okay. So when all these normal businesses didn't work out, he went with the only guaranteed business you could do after that, Justin. And that's religion. And he enrolls in the seminary. And you know what? You know what happened right after he enrolled in the in the seminary, Justin? What happened? Tell me what happened, Cena. <laughs> Tell the congregation what happened. This dude somehow has a born again moment. What do you know? Unbelievable. So after the seminary, he serves at the church a bit. And I think this is where everything started to change. Because one night, Justin. He received the word, the word of God. God? Yeah, Justin. God. Imagine. God speaks to you. And you know what God told Pat Robertson? Donate your wealth to the poor? No. Dedicate your life in the service of others? No. Run for president? No. God said, buy the hillbilly UHF television station in Portsmouth, Virginia. Well, the Lord does work in mysterious ways. Amen. Amen. And this is how Christian... Shit was back then. This is how Christian shit was. The owner of the station at the time asked Pat Robertson, how much is the Lord willing to pay for my station, Mr. Robertson? And Robertson said $37,000. And that's about $320,000 in today's dollars. This bar exam failing broke businessman who went to the seminary practicing at a church. He's got no money. He bought that shit with J.P. Morgan, Jesus credit, and he's just going off and buying an entire television station. I like the guy. It's like, how much is God willing to pay for this? And then, like, Pat Robertson just looks up, and God is like, I got about 37K. (laughs) (laughs) The Lord God will pay 37K for your station. I didn't know God had also access to everyone's balance sheets. That's interesting. To know he's doing he's doing some account. You know that's what credit wise is, right? That's God running those numbers. What? When you do when you oh, check your credit, right? yeah. <laughs> Experience is from heaven. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so he buys this station, and it's and it's the WYAH channel twenty seven. It started off very small. It was only a thirty by thirty foot studio, one camera, and one seventy foot pole to hold up the antenna. And here's the birth of the Christian Broadcasting Network. This is WYAH-TV in Portsmouth, Virginia, America's first Christian television station, Virginia's most powerful television station, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to the one and one-half million people of Tidewater and the surrounding areas of Virginia and North Carolina. WIAH-TV is owned and operated by the Christian Broadcasting Network and operates under the authority of the Federal Communications Commission on Channel 27. The Federal Communications Commission gives you the license to operate on this band of airwaves. And now the Christian gospel, the evangelical Christian gospel, is now blasting in Portsmouth, Virginia. Paul of Tarsus could have never dreamed of having a bandwidth this big. So that's the Christian Broadcasting Network. It's now blasting to anywhere in Portsmouth, Virginia that can see, that has line of sight to this antenna. And we'll break that down a little bit more. So from Tuesday through Saturday, for three hours and five hours on Sunday, Pat Robertson would ask 700 viewers to pledge $10 a month to keep the ministry alive. And that's how the 700 Club started. Did you ever know that? No, I didn't know. I didn't realize where the number came from. Uh, I thought 700 was a representation of the amount of minutes of on-screen time this guy has <laughs> like, for every show. That's, a, that's the amount of new material he does every Sunday. <laughs> yeah, it's like, Jesus, man, he's staring at this camera. You know, it's like, it's just amazing. It's like, break it up. Let's get some guests on the show. Exactly. Justin, I also was kind of thinking about this. Like, is, isn't it more respectable almost 
to in a way to ask for your fans or your congregation for something as opposed to, you know, asking for advertisers, which which one do you think is a better model? Which one do you think is more morally right? Morally right? Yeah. From my point of view, uh, I don't I don't like any of it. None of it. So how are you gonna how are you gonna put on a show? So it's like one thing is like, okay, you could, you know, you got the stamps.coms of the world that could that are funding like all the podcasts in, in America. Then the other hand is like you could do like the Patreon approach. I've always found both to be problematic. Uh, I guess to your point, like neither ha- ha- are ideal. Well, I like stamps.com, but but you know, because they seem okay, but it's always like uh I don't know. Like it'd always be something like a, a company that sells like tanks or something is like, or like they're like Blackwater. It's like, you, know, like, yeah, you shouldn't be advertising for Blackwater. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Blackwater, if you're listening to fraudsters, you'll love Blackwater. <laughs> Hire your military contractors today for, <laughs> for your violent government overthrow. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's this weird thing because there's something about it that seems honorable to say, hey, we're not going to go beg for another from a corporation for money let's keep it all in-house let's fund our own show but i guess the problem with that is at the end of the day you still have to be honest with your audience which is what never happens to these guys who are preachers yeah the good thing is that it's crowdsourced and that yeah like theoretically you have some accountability your audience but also it also by not having any outside influence, you also then have no layer of accountability, and then you sort of yeah. have a cult. You have a cult of personalities uh, system that gets built up. Exactly, and you know what? The other thing is, no matter what, Pat Robertson had to fill the time. He's got to fill the seeds. Like we got to do thirty-five episodes. If you want to, if you want to get that money, and you want to spread the gospel, you got to put on a show. And you need content. It's like it's no different than what the internet content machine is today. They just needed Christian content constantly. So five years in, it's a struggle for Pat Robertson. It's 1965, and Pat Robertson and his Christian broadcast network hires a puppet show, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. And let's hear Pat Robertson actually talk about this himself and how he hired them. They were traveling children's evangelists and uh, uh, they seemed to have uh, a way with puppets and kids and I, I was looking for a host of a kid show so I hired them to do that. Oh my god, he had a way with puppets and kids. I'm surprised Brian Singer wasn't in there. That's <laughs> <laughs> Also I like I like the double meaning of puppets and kids. <laughs> It's like who is the puppet? Who is the puppet in all this? Yes, this is where we've we've dropped to this level on fraudsters. Welcome, welcome. <laughs> but within a couple of years, Justin, this cute little puppet show got really popular, and they would bicker about their marital problems on the air, and they would do these little fun bits where they, they were actually just talking out their problems. And they were one of the biggest shows on Channel 27. So with a TV station run by donations, it means you got to get the money. And the studio needed to grow. The previous year's telethon raised $40,000. And the current year was 1965. And they wanted to raise $120,000. And it's the last night of their week-long telethon. And they were way behind. Jim Baker is on the mic. And he's got to figure out a way to get people to give money. Jim Baker looks into the camera and starts breaking down crying. This is like the third rail for telethons. He's begging. He's crying. And there's a quote from John Wigger's book, The Rise and Fall of PTL. As he's looking into the camera, he's crying and he's saying, Our entire purpose has been to serve the Lord Jesus Christ through radio and television, but we've fallen far short. We need $10,000 a month or we'll be off the air. And he keeps going. Listen, people, it's all over. Everything's gone. Christian television will be no more. The only Christian television station is gone unless you provide us with the money to operate it. 
I like it. Just it goes from like fundraising to like blackmail. And you know what happened though? You know what happened? I don't even need to tell you what fucking happened. They raised over a hundred and fifty thousand dollars that night. Peep. They kept the telethon open till three o'clock in the morning. People were coming in and hand delivering money, not just calling in to mail checks. They were hand delivering money. These guys were so popular. They had so much power over people. It was absurd. One reporter in 1967 said, Jim and Tammy are to Channel 27 what Lucille Ball is to CBS. And they do that shit five nights a week, Justin. This is the biggest show in Virginia at that time or any in that on Channel 27 on the entire channel. They were competing against Lucille Ball and crushing yeah, I, I'll always remember the iconic episode of Jim and Tammy at the Chocolate Factory assembly line. It's such a classic bit. <laughs> Chocolate Bibles in her mouth. Yeah, yeah, it's such an iconic television. That's it. That's at the Museum of Radio and Television, I think. But Pat Robertson, though, is pearl clutching. This is not his style. Crying on air? No, this is not the way he likes to roll. This is his network, and this hippy-dippy format isn't his style. And this kind of shit, when you're more popular, just like any other television station here or, or channel or network or film studio, this leads to egos clashing when talent gets too big. They want more power, and then battle lines get drawn, and then they leave for a better gig. And here's Pat Robertson talking about the split. Well, then they, they at least Jim, later hosted the 700 Club, and uh, he and I you know, alternated uh, on that. And then, then he decided it was time to go and move on. So they leave CBN and Baker manages to work with a general manager for another Christian television station to rent and then hopefully buy Channel 46 in Los Angeles. But before he could do that, Pat Robertson actually says it happened another way. He actually talks about how Jim Baker got a little help from someone you may have heard of. And then he created, when he created, I guess, PTL. Yeah, well, actually, Ted Turner created PTL. Nobody knows that. Uh, that was our affiliate in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, Ted got mad at me because I was going to start running commercials on our Atlanta station and competing with Channel 17. And he got furious and and uh, canceled our contract, just broke it arbitrarily. You know, he's known as Terrible Ted, and he, he was as terrible in those days as perhaps he's toned down some now as he's gotten older. But... Uh, uh, he told his managers to call Baker, and, and they literally came into uh, Charlotte, took over our set, our time, our audience, with our format. And that started PTL. That, so if it, if it was flawed a little bit along the way, I think it can be looked, it can go back to its origins. Christian Shade. I mean, that's. PTL, praise the Lord, it's born. I love it that Ted Turner is involved in so many different things. I mean, like people forget that he also started World Championship Wrestling to compete against Vince McMahon's WWF. You know, Ted Turner knew he could smell money. He knew what good television was. And if you go, the world is going to end every Sunday on your television show. That's good TV. People are going to tune into that. It's good TV. It's uh, it's just a season cliffhanger every every day. Every single day. You've got to prepare for the end of times. Okay, Justin, so PTL, or Praise the Lord, is Jim and Tammy Faye Baker's network, and they are growing exponentially fast. It's like the 700 Club, but a little bit more entertaining. Yeah, it's uh, slightly more entertaining than watching Pat Robertson stare into the camera and talk for four hours in a row. And to understand... How they got so big, I think there are two catalysts that really exploded, that really helped them get into stardom, into this stratosphere of raising hundreds of millions of dollars over time. One of those is the birth of cable and satellite television. And to understand cable, you really have to understand how just the antennas work. The great American skyscrapers become a part of the fastest growing new industry in the United States. Television, the fascinating shortwave medium of sight and sound. Atop the big towers are television transmitting antennas, each of them sending out millions of electrical impulses a second to direct a stream of electrons on distant television screens. 
Because the ultra-shortwave radio vibrations do not travel far beyond the horizon, the antennas have to be high to cover a large area. Thus, the tall buildings in America's cities become natural elevations from which to send this modern means of communication and entertainment. But the other end of the circuit, the receiving sets in countless homes, is perhaps the most important. For although the technical side of television has long been known to scientists, this new medium will open new horizons in education and entertainment to all. All right, so dude, so like I said earlier, that Portsmouth, Virginia antenna was only broadcasting to every house that had an antenna on their roof that could see the Channel 27 antenna. You had to see the fucking antenna, Justin. I mean, it's just so amazing. I always like the old clips because they're so hopeful about science, future, and technology. Uh, they, <laughs> they had no idea all of this would be used for Jerry Springer and pornography. Everyone is going to benefit from this new cutting-edge technology. <laughs> but if you think about how the antenna works, right? It kind of limits your audience, really. And it limits the content that a certain household can consume. So the scientists behind the antennas in the cable industry figured out a way to capture these distance signals with receiving towers and relaying them to consumers by using long cables. That's it. That's all we're talking about. Big fucking long cables. All they did is the same shit. They just got more antennas capturing more shit and using longer wires to pump it into our homes. It's not some fucking revolutionary touchscreen shit, man. They just were like, let's just let's just put a pipe in there. Let's just put a weird metal pipe in there. <laughs> and that innovation was followed by the innovation of some of my neighbors growing up who found out that if you were to take a decommissioned cable box from somewhere else, you could watch the Tyson fight for free. <laughs> exactly. So radio waves travel at close to the speed of light. So the channel 27 antenna shoots pretty quickly to your home. But with cable, it travels at two-thirds that speed. And so those coaxial cables, those long black cables, they need to be amplified as they go to people's homes. So I say this so that you know how much money was poured into the cable industry. Every thousand feet, they had to put an amplifier in. So the Ted Turners of the world are thinking a bunch of money's going to go in and we're going to make millions of fucking dollars out of it. Because if you invest a lot of money, you expect that multiple to be even bigger and bigger. And thousands of miles of cable started crisscrossing the country now. And you had these networks of cable places that allowed you to actually tune into a specific channel. Literally, the words tune in meant tuning into a frequency. And all of a sudden, cable is now exploded. If these guys were comics, it's like going from an empty bar show to selling out Madison Square Garden for the year. This shit was huge. 60 Minutes even covered it. While the industry grows, thoughtful men are examining its social implications and the need for comprehensive regulation to make sure that it achieves its promise. At its best, cable television could provide a refreshing relief from the trend toward bigness, toward centralization in all aspects of our lives. It could begin to give us back our neighborhoods. It could give a voice to those people and events and ideas now lost in today's race for a mass audience. At its worst, cable TV could invade our privacy, tranquilize our children, <laughs> remove us electronically from the flesh and blood world, and would have to pay for the privilege. The question is, indeed, will the miracle be managed? <laughs> <laughs> oh, how high of hopes they had. I like it because they were like kind of right on the warnings, except for they missed the what really happened. The real thing was is that uh, you've now decentralized experience enough uh, as like sort of just like market shares to where there's actually no common conception of reality now. Everyone is just allowed to insulate themselves in their own website, their own cable news personality, their own thing. And like like none of this – like so people just don't even know like basic – uh, reality. It's not Wal we're not all sitting down to watch Walter Cronkite read the news anymore. Uh, man, you know? it's not just yeah, we didn't just lose the neighborhood, we lost our minds. <laughs> we lost yeah. everything. Yeah, yeah. Five plus five is twenty-seven yeah. because I can go over to channel ninety-nine and that's what they're saying over there. <laughs> 
So in 72, 1972, there are thousands of cable systems in the country and 7.3 million subscribers. In seven years, cable subscribers grew by over 450%. That's why I said about all that investment. They're growing at 450% over seven years. That's how they're making all this money. And to get a 60 second ad in 1970, it costs you about 60 grand. Okay, 60 seconds, 60 grand. By the end of the decade, 1979, 1980-ish, to get a 60-second ad on CBS, NBC, or ABC, it was $200,000. Their revenues over that decade increased from $1 billion to $3 billion. So access to specific types of content like Christian television not only was possible, but it was soaring in popularity in the 70s to the point where Jim Baker in 1978 bought a satellite to broadcast his show to affiliate stations instead of sending them tapes. So this is amazing. He's so big. It's amazing as a story of capitalism, right? Because this runs actually parallel to uh, pro wrestling making the transition from the regional territory phase to the major centralized companies of WCW and WWF. So with the rapid growth of television, he's now fucking global. PTL, praise the Lord, people that love, isn't just an American show, it's global. They had a Latin American version of PTL, and in Seoul, Korea, home of the world's largest church, they were broadcasting on Baker's PTL channel as well. Cable was like this open space, and Baker and some good Christian lawyers and probably Ted Turner were able to just snatch it right up. I'm guessing the Latin American version of PTL was uh, a little bit more dramatic and everybody was smoking hot. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that's cable. When you see how cable exploded during the 70s, shit went crazy, and all of a sudden everyone is able to access Christian broadcast television and especially the PTL network, praise the Lord. And Jim Baker and Tammy Faye Baker were killing it. The other catalyst that helped... Jim and Tammy Faye Baker explode was the rise of Pentecostalism in this country, in the old United States. So Pentecostalism was the rocket that helped propel Jim Baker to stardom, just one of these rockets. So I did a little research, and here's how it started, right? Uh, there was a, a book of Acts, right? This called thing, the book of Acts, and we're going to have an expert come on and explain some more about this. But after the resurrection of Jesus, he appeared to his disciples, and he promised that they would receive the power of the Holy Ghost, and it would come upon them. And later, the disciples gathered in Jerusalem, I don't know, probably to take mushrooms or something. And it was during the Pentecost, the Jewish Feast of Weeks. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as if a a rushing might of wind and filled all the house that they were sitting. And then there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire. And it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. So the modern start of Pentecostalism wasn't back in the day. It was actually in California here in 1906 as the Azusa Street Revival. They had gatherings, people were speaking in tongues, and then the LA Times wrote an article about it. That article spread across the country. All of a sudden, people in North Carolina, like the Jim Bakers of the world, get wind of it, and his congregation, the Assemblies of God, start to take a hold of this. But you still have these other religions growing during the 1900s. But here's the difference. When it comes to entertainment, when it comes to TV, the fire and brimstone and the end of the world approach of the Pentecostals and the evangelicals, it's just better for TV. And to answer more questions about that, I want to bring in a dear friend of mine, Pat O'Boyle, co-host of the Italian-American podcast that you can get on every platform. Big ups to that podcast. Really wonderful and sweet podcast about Italian culture. Who knows more about Pentecostal Christians than any other Irish Catholic Italian from Jersey I've ever met. I want to bring in Pat O'Boyle here to help figure out how did Pentecostalism come to be. Pat, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And it is an honor. The word honor does not does not really even begin to cover the emotions that I have to be on this podcast today. So I, I come here humbled to sit at the foot of the master. That being said, you're right about two things. It's an American phenomenon with very British roots, A. 
And B, when you talked about the entertainment of their services, um, that's something else you hit on. Can we do like a two-minute American Pentecostal rise? So what, what happens is England fills up with all these people. A lot of it had to do with Scotland. Um, all these people want a radically whole different kind of Christianity based on, on Calvin's world worldview of basically stripping Christianity down to, down to bare bones. These very radical people begin to, um, they begin to kind of march on the church in England. And because of the political instability in England, it was very hard to keep the country, country Catholic or Anglican. And what happens is you have a lot of religious plurality. So you have a lot of kind of fundamentalist, um, and they're the cause of the glorious revolution. They're the cause of the republic that overthrows the crown. So when you have the restoration, everybody in England's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We got to have one religion because all these competing religions in England, they're going to be too much trouble. We're not going to have government stability. So they crack down on the Catholic church and they go after the real extreme fundamentalists, what we would call fundamentalists today. And they say, okay, the middle road is the church of England. And that's going to be everybody's religion. And if you don't like it, you're going to get out of here or we're going to, we're going to get rid of you. So many of these radicals are basically driven out of England. Some go to the north of Ireland, but some of them like, listen, we want religious freedom. And the Church of England is clamping down on us. And they all came to America. These religious rebels all come to America. That's why you don't have Pentecostalism in England. England kind of expelled everybody. I think it was Chesterton that said that, you know, America and, and the pilgrims and, and, and the Unitarians are all part of this dissenter family. They were called dissenters. You have Chesterton. So sorry, sorry to interrupt, but, but how now that they're in America, though, and let's just cut to the early 1900s. How is it that, to your point, these rebels or the radicals of Christianity were able to grow so quickly over 70 years as opposed to the other religions? Because remember something, everybody did grow. The Catholic Church doubled in the U.S. in population from 1920 to 1940. Why Pentecostalism grew, in your opinion, is that it was basically a unifying form of fundamentalism to all these different scattered Christian sects across the country. Mm. And because you didn't have the infrastructure that the Orthodox or the Catholic Church has that says, okay, we don't have any, any kind of internal infrastructure, Every independent person and the independent, let's say, fundamentalist Christian could join into Pentecostalism. There's no checks and balances on the system, if that makes sense. So it's a decentralized form of Christianity. 100%. Wow. They, they are the exact opposite of Catholicism because Catholicism has all these like break stops, like all these, yep. these and, and orthodoxy. They have nobody to watch over them and they pride themselves. See, Catholicism says, and Orthodoxy and the, and the old Christian religions, we talk to God as a group. God and us, we're his people. He's our God. We have a group relationship. Pentecostalism says you and God have a one-on-one -on -one relationship, and he's going to talk to you directly. So since they don't have a Eucharistic sacrifice the way that Rome or Constantinople, the Catholics or Orthodox do, they have to instead... Um, they have to basically bring beauty, and a lot of it is through the emotional drama of these very emotional preaching. So when you see them on television, that the, you know the tears and the, it's a it's a it's an external emblem of of their religious conviction that the traditional religions put into a liturgical sense, which you would like call mass. Does and that so, make sense? Yes. So then, because of the uh, the radical nature of it. They've constantly harped on the end of the world or... What happened is they criticized the Catholic yeah. and the Orthodox. Why? For, they say, quote unquote, keeping the Bible from people, which is not true. Our liturgies always have the, the readings from the Bible. So where the, the church... Now, when you're talking about the end of the world revelation, that's powerful stuff. No shit. If you read it the wrong <laughs> way, it can, it, it can have negative consequences. That's why the old the old time Christianity said, listen, we're going to read it to you and then we're going to preach about it. So you interpret it the right way. Mm. You know, Jesus in the Bible says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Old Christianity never, ever said that 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 was a literal meaning. And the same thing with fundamentalists. They they dance with poisonous snakes. Right. 
So the way the Catholic Church and Orthodoxy have always interpreted is that, listen, when Christ says you can handle, with my power, with me, you're going to be able to handle poisonous snakes. He's not talking about going into a field and looking for a poisonous snake to pick up and deal with. He's, he's giving you a, 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 you know, the worst of the worst is going to go against you and my message, but I'm going to get you through it. What makes this so alluring to millions and millions of people to give money? What is it about it that makes it so alluring for people? The one thing the fundamentalists have always drummed home to their credit and have been successful for is at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, it's between you and God. And they've done a great job of driving that home to people. And when you have people who are looking for a relationship with God and they listen to, to, to preachers who tell them, just reach out to God, just get close to God, that is their strength. And they do a phenomenal job at that. Now, when you have a good preacher, when you have someone who's doing a good job, there's fundamentalist people, churches have done wonderful things in the social settings and senses like that, even though I might see them as heretical personally. You have, those, you have people who are very dedicated, very moved, and they contribute. But sometimes you have people who are alone and, and they're shut in their house and they put on TV and they have someone who gives them a fantastic biblical message, a fundamentalist, to have a one-on-one relationship with God, to have a one-on-one relationship with Jesus. And so they want to give. They want to contribute to that ministry. The ministry can do very good things with the money or the ministry can do very bad things with the money. The problem is with fundamentalism, you don't have the infrastructure that Catholicism and Orthodoxy has that if someone who is a preacher is acting in a bad way to be able to police them. Pat O'Boyle from the Italian American podcast. What a wealth of knowledge. I have to say that was like drinking water out of a fire hose for a good chunk of it. But I learned a whole heck of a lot there. Pat, thank you so much. It was an honor. Thank you. To say, I, I wish there was a word better than honor, but it's the best word I can find. Make sure. So I can say it was an honor again to sit at the foot of the master. To but you are the podcast king of America. <laughs> we all know that you were a podcast before podcast was cool. You were the Christopher Columbus. I know he's a very hotly contested person today, but the Italian Americans were the Christopher Columbus of podcasts. It was already there, but when you found it, you you brought it to everyone. All right, thanks, guys. Have a good day. Thank thanks for having you. me on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye bye. Holy shit. <laughs> Okay, so now that's Pat. Now that Baker is at the top of his game, he's different than Pat Robertson, who's obviously still doing the 700 Club. They both asked for money, but Pat made it like a donation helping the movement out. Baker, though, made giving money not only about saving his bootstrap station, but they would get wealth in return in multiples. Now, this is what they call the prosperity gospel, which is like, Justin, we should have thought of this shit you know, we should we should have thought of this shit for comedy. It's like if if you come and, and patron the comedy shows and laugh, you'll actually get more money in return. That's what I say. Some people say laughter is the best medicine. I say laughter is the best money. Yeah, exactly. So the prosperity gospel is this. God wants you to be happy and rich, and he wants you to indulge in all of his treasures. After all, he made them. Why would he not want you to enjoy them? So where the 700 Club's first studio was small and it was 30 by 30, Heritage Village, Baker's first studio, had a lot more money to spend. They built a 9,000 square foot space with over 200 theater style seats, lights, cameras, the works, all this on a 25 acre plot of land. Huge space. I'm asking you to start giving. And just see what happens in your life. Yeah, that's a great plan. I also would like to follow that plan. I need you to start giving me money and just see what happens in your life. <laughs> just see what happens. Yo, just see what happens. Let's just, you know, don't rush into anything. Just see what, hey, just give us some money. And I think you'll be surprised about something. So they said it over and over and over again. Give us money and it will be returned to you several times over. And that money is used to fund the production costs and the satellite fees and to keep the ministry running. And it's not just the PTL club anymore. Jim Baker isn't just this aloof, fun-loving, simple preacher. He wasn't just a guy spreading love and joy. It's the PTL satellite network now. And they ran this shit like a tech startup. All the employees drank the fucking Kool-Aid, just like the WeWork kids and their IPA taps. 
They thought they were doing something bigger than themselves. Again, from uh, the rise and fall of PTL, there's a quote about the staff in here. PTL had a lot of young staff that saw themselves in something important. They were early on cable, and they didn't think of themselves as professionals, but missionaries trying to make the world a better place. Think about that, that rationalization. You're not just a professional TV producer. You are a professional TV missionary. This is the same kind of tech language we hear from Silicon Valley, and they have the same kind of appeal. Work long hours because you're making a difference. You are part of something bigger. And Baker, again, ran it like a micromanaging tech CEO. It's like a, it's like a higher tech version of the Rajanish cult. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> then in 1978, Baker builds Heritage USA, the Christian Disneyland. If everybody had Jesus across the USA, then everybody be praying in California. You'd see them wearing tunics and sandals too. Well, she blonde hair Here it is, USA. Yes, the Christian Disneyland Heritage USA. I would actually say this is the slow beginning of the end for Jim Baker. Millions of people uh, or what they called partners, the praise the Lord partners, the people that donated, would come each year to vacation at Heritage USA, which was just a big theme park. Baker here was actually providing a valuable community and service to those partners. People rented campsites, chalets, went to religious seminars. They had PTL souvenir shops, guided tours. They could swim, play tennis, volleyball, softball, ping pong, pool, ping pong, fucking everything, man. In the 70s, it was the third largest amusement park only behind Disney World and Disneyland. It's so crazy. It's like a small world, except the, uh, there's a gauntlet from the Passion of the Christ. <laughs> And so even before he built Heritage USA, he was planning to be as big as Disney. He even went to Disney World a bunch to see how he wanted to build his amusement park. I mentioned that he was a micromanaging tech CEO, and he was. He chose the color of the carpets. He chose which trees to preserve as they cut through the forest to make the roadway to get to Heritage USA. He even got his contract rewritten with the board of directors so that they could only remove him unless he was convicted of a crime. Foreshadowing! <laughs> Baker was a master of communication. He made it feel like people were right there with him in the room. But who was listening? It was mainly white, middle, and upper-class Christians who in the late 70s and 80s were sending more than a million dollars a week to the PTL network. But the problem is he kept wanting to build he kept wanting to grow Heritage Village and Heritage USA, and one of those places was called the Total Learning Center, and it was going to cost millions. But to build the TLC, the Total Learning Center, it was going to strain the finances of the entire ministry. They were bringing in a lot, but they were spending even more. Baker was even looking for that $50 million loan, which never happened because the bank said he was too risky. Finances of the whole the ministry didn't seem all that right. They said, we can't fund TLC. I mean, that feels like chasing waterfalls. <laughs> so yeah. you're saying they chose to stick to the rivers and lakes that they were used to. <laughs> the queen. So against the advice of his accounting department, he went ahead and just started building it anyways. And when they asked Laxton Construction Company, the company that was in charge of it, they asked one of the project managers why they kept giving him extensions and not even taking any money up front. They just started building this thing for Jim Baker. One of the project managers just said, well, his personality overcomes us. You know, he talks us into it. This is how compelling this man was. Not only did he have a Disneyland, but they just spent $1.5 to get an additional 1,200 acres to build this whole total learning center. The plan was to build a university, a campground, a day school, and at the end of the day, it was going to cost them $100 million. But you cannot stop this man. He is not done. He was making promises all over the world. And so the Lord gave us a vision. This vision has been a long time coming. It's our privilege to unveil the PTL Partner Center. The new PTL Partner Center. It's a total center for people to come 
It's a 504-room hotel, the Heritage Grand Hotel. When you give your $1,000 gift, you receive a special membership card that will allow you to stay here in the Heritage Grand for four days and three nights every year for the rest of your life. This guy is about to embark on becoming the biggest televangelist in the entire world. He's a global phenomenon. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more Jim Baker. But I wanted to take a moment just to talk about our good buddy Ed Larson's movie that's coming out tomorrow. Ed, as you know, is the host of The Brighter Side. He's a good friend of this show. He's a best friend of mine. He was the officiant in my wedding. And a few years ago, his mother passed away. And, you know, it was tough on him, especially. I remember how much he would take care of his mother and how much he cared for her. And the context and the background in which she passed was really tragic. You know, she suffered from diabetes. Medicare wouldn't pay for a lot of the things she needed. She was getting, she was basically victimized by predatory banks, casinos, department stores, getting her in this debt system that broke her, basically. And what Ed found when he did this, and he interviewed a, a bunch of amazing people for this, including Senator Chris Murphy and Gary Johnson, the presidential candidate, was that his mother's story wasn't unique, that a lot of people are going through this or have gone through this. And so we wish him the best of luck on it. Make sure you go watch it. On Friday, it's going to be available for purchase at HowAmericaKilledMyMother.com. That's HowAmericaKilledMyMother.com. Can't believe no one else had that URL. All right, everybody, that's it for today. Special thanks to Joshua Sutherland, who was awesome at putting together all those parody songs that we had here today. And, of course, Hazel Bryan, our amazing producer, and Marie Anderson, who's putting these shows together one after the other, despite me trying to make it more difficult for her. She still does it. And, of course, as always, this show has been a production of Zero Cool Media and The Last Podcast Network. Next episode. We are going to cover all the lies he told, all those international partners that he said he had, all the people that he made promises to, to come to the Total Learning Center, and the fraud case, and we're even going to get into his childhood. What made Jim Baker Jim Baker? So next time, check us out, come back, there will be more lies, more Jim Baker, and maybe some more Tammy Faye and the Puppet song. And may God continue to bless you on your journey to the next episode of Fraudsters.